morning, church. I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word as we continue to worship this morning and turn with me to the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 4, specifically verses 24 through 26 this morning. Again, that's Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. If you ever go to a concert, one of the reasons you go to a concert is so that the artists that you've been listening to for years or decades or the band that maybe you have all of their, uh, their, their music on your Spotify playlist, you're able to see them in person, and you certainly take hours out of your evening. Uh, you, you put down a lot of money to be able to hear them play the hits. I mean, that, that is one of the, the things about going to see a band or an artist in person is you, you want them to play the good old songs. Maybe the songs from your teenage years, or maybe the songs even more recent than that. But if you're a true fan of that artist, if you're a true fan of that band, one of the things that you're going to enjoy about seeing them live is for them to play the deep cuts, the, the, the B-side tracks. You remember the old vinyl, you had the A-side, and then you flipped it over. But, but a lot of people didn't flip over, so the, sort of the singles would be on the A-side. And so the B-side, were the, those were the deep cuts, now, only the true fan. We know a, a B-side track. We're walking through the story of Moses, and certainly we're hitting the greatest hits. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Moses and the burning bush, Moses and the party in the Red Sea, it's before us. The Ten Commandments, it is before us. But, but this morning, we're, we're going to listen to a B-side track that rarely gets airplay on Sunday morning. Uh, we're we're going to listen to a, a deep cut that, that rarely is, is a song that we listen to as a church. Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 24, I remind you of the context of this. Moses has been called by God as God has appeared to him in, in the fire in the bush, and the bush is not consumed. And he says, I am, and Moses says, I am not, I am not your man. I am not your man to go back to Egypt and say, let my people go. If I go, God, as Moses begins to fish for alibis, he says, they're not going to even understand me. They're not going to believe me. I don't have great oratorical skills. And so, so I am not your man, God says to Moses. Hey, look, I'm going to be with you. You don't want to go, I'll give you a voice piece, your Hebrew brother by the name of Aaron, he's going. So, so God is sufficient in the midst of every excuse that, that Moses begins to fish for and, and reels in. So God says, on your way. So what we discover is this Moses and his family are headed back to Egypt with the commission of God upon him, calling Pharaoh to let his people go. And then we have this strange, peculiar detour. In the story, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And it was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Hey, if your first reaction is, what in the world is going on here? You are in really good company. <laughs> You're in 3,000 years of company 
You're in the company of Jewish commentators upon this passage, Christian commentators upon this passage that have been perplexed by it. I love the way a Jewish commentator by the name of Jeremy uh, Jeffrey Tigga says that this episode, possibly abridged from a fuller, clearer version, is extraordinarily puzzling. Because the motive for God's attack is unclear, the pronouns are ambiguous, and Zipporah's remarks are enigmatic. The only consensus, church, about this passage for really 3,000 years has been a fairly good lack of consensus because God in His sovereignty gives us what we need to know, but He doesn't give us everything we might be curious to know about Scripture here. What we do know clearly is God has a death sentence upon Moses, and that's surprising. God has a death sentence upon Moses. The the very Moses that he protects as Pharaoh gives an edict in chapter 1 that every child will be killed. And God protects Moses in chapter 1, chapter 2. The same Moses that, that God appears to in the burning bush calls to go back to Egypt. Now on his way to Egypt has a death sentence that is placed upon him. If you think this is a plot twist, well, of course it is. And it's a surprising one nonetheless. It's surprising to us. Now, the origin of why God seeks Moses' death is is something that becomes clear as we read this passage here. Moses fails to circumcise his son Gershom. Zipporah realizes this. How she realizes it, again, there's tremendous speculation. We don't know. Uh, There's some commentators who say maybe Moses comes under some type of seizure. There are others that say maybe there's a sickness here. There are others that say maybe Zipporah has a divine revelation from God. We just don't know. But Zipporah steps in. Now, what we do know is absolutely how important circumcision is for the Hebrew people. Now, to know that, you've got to rewind the tape. You don't rewind to Exodus 3, you don't go to Exodus 1, but you got to rewind to, to Genesis chapter 17. you got to rewind when God was establishing that covenant with Abraham and Sarah to be the father of a great nation. And God says to Abram in Genesis chapter 17 that there is going to be a physical sign of my special relationship with you, the covenant people. And that sign was what? It was circumcision. Circumcision was not hygienic, first and foremost, for the Hebrew people. It was, it was a special relationship, the physical manifestation of that relationship that every male child had. By the age of eight days old, every Hebrew child was to be circumcised, God says. Now, it's really, really important because if a foreigner comes into the Israelite camp, guess what? To be an Israelite, to be with them, he must be circumcised. If a servant comes in to the Hebrew camp, guess what? He must be circumcised. So the consequences for failing to enact what God calls is really clear in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 14, you see it on the screen here. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So get the picture. If you're inside God's covenant family, you're protected. His grace is upon you. It is a sign that is visible, which is circumcision. If you're outside the judgment of God, the death that will come upon you is upon you because you're outside of his covenant people. So this is vital. It's a unique sign where they were set apart from the rest of the nations. Now, why why, why would Moses circumcise his child? 
Why, why would he have not done that? And again, do you see it in verse 24? Do you see it in verse 25? Do you see it in verse 26? And the answer is no, you don't. So we're again left to speculation, but, but I have a good hunch. I think of the reason why Moses doesn't circumcise his child, because there's a whole lot of Egypt in Moses. There is a whole lot of Midianite culture that is still in Moses. You see, God's covenant that he gave to the Hebrew people, Moses is far from it. And what we discover by him not circumcising his child is that he's lost his spiritual roots. He's grown distant from his spiritual heritage. There's more Midianite influence. There's more Egyptian influence than there is the word of God to Moses to enact what God commanded his people to do as the son of the covenant. Now, why do I think that is a right hunch? Because you know something? We're like Moses in that way. We, we know what it is to fail to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, to fail to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We know what it is to be conformed to the patterns of this world. It might not be Egyptian standards. It might not be Midianite standards. But we know what it is to have the world begin to seep into us and we listen less to the word of God and we're formed more by the world around us. We, we are like Moses in that way. The Egyptian people knew of circumcision, but there was a tremendous distaste for that practice. The Midianite people knew of circumcision, but there was a tremendous distaste. So you can imagine Moses saying, I'm leaving my roots behind and we're headed in another direction. And now God has his attention. He's headed back to Egypt. And God says to Moses, you got to practice what you preach. We imagine that, that Moses would have been circumcised because God's, uh, God gave him that protection with his, with his parents for three months. So he knew of this inaction. He knew of this commandment here, but he chooses not to do this. And the consequences are so clear, death. The severity of God's wrath upon Moses here is so clear. God says he's not done what he should do, and the penalty for that will be the end of his life. And Zipporah realizes this, and she, she, she responds with action very quickly here, and she does what Moses should have done. She takes that leadership role. It's a sad thing here, and I don't have much time to explain it here, but notice one of the things that you're, you're seeing in Exodus is that Shipra and Pua, the two Hebrew midwives, are faithful examples. We see Zipporah as a faithful example. We see the women of Exodus taking this role of faithfulness here, while so often we see the men in these early chapters here that ultimately fail to live to what God is calling them to do here. There, there's some people that look at the old Testament, look at the Bible, and they say there's this repression of females throughout it. And I just want to remind you in quick passing here just how females are exalted for their faithfulness and as exemplars of the faith in these early chapters here. Hey, that's free of charge right there. I didn't, I didn't even say this at 830. I didn't say this at 945. This is why you come to 11 o'clock right here to get the free of charge kind of things here. So back to the passage here. Zipporah says, you know what she says? She says, as she enacts what Moses should have done, and the blood of that act of her son covers the feet of Moses, and she uh, cries out, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Most likely what, what she's referring to is, is we were married years ago, 
We walk the aisle, we said our vows. I have received you back from the dead. The judgment of God was upon you, but now you're covered with the blood of obedience here. And ultimately, I've received you back, Moses, from the dead. And so we're moving forward here. It's an act of faithfulness that Zipporah gives to Moses. And God sees Zipporah's faithfulness and credits it to Moses and spares his life. It is, my friends, no way around it. This is a peculiar and this is an odd story. Months ago, I was preparing my message series to the book of Exodus, and we chart out months in advance what Sunday we're going to be preaching things on. And so I wrestled with preaching this passage here and finally came to the place where I thought it would would be an important passage to be able to preach through. But the way the calendar was working was I was coming to preach this chapter, this section of Scripture, last Sunday. So... If you think it's uncomfortable for me to preach this this Sunday, last Sunday was Valentine's Day. I assure you, it could have been worse. I assure you of that. Happy Valentine's Day. Let's read Exodus chapter 4. Now back to the passage here. What is clear to us is the severity of sin. The judgment of God against sin. The penalty of our sin, just like Moses which is God's wrath that ends in death, physical death for Moses. That, that word sin, it's just a three-letter word. It's almost extinct from the vocabulary of our world. Carl Menninger was a famous psychiatrist 50 years ago that penned this book that maybe some of you have heard of. Whatever became of sin was the question he posed in this book. And as a, as a secular psychologist, he, he was just he was pondering the fact that our society ha, ha, can't, can't speak of these things of sin any longer, the disappearance of the word of sin from social conversations. And, and you just fast forward 50 years, and does anything change when we talk of sin? If we talk of sin in our culture, we justify it or we ignore it. And more than that, what, what I don't think Menninger could have predicted in the 70s when he asked that question in the book, I don't know if he, if he would have known that it's not just the culture that has a hesitation to speak of sin and the consequences of sin, but we in the church, we whisper if we even bring it up. We whisper about the effects of sin, the consequences of sin, the wrath of God, a holy God who has at his very core perfection. And as a holy God, he looks upon sin and there is, there is a response to that. And that response is judgment. It is wrath to sin and against sin. There are consequences for our sin. A couple years ago, Danielle and I decided that for Christmas we were going to give our boys a trip, sort of a bucket list trip that she and I were longing, frankly, all of our life to go. We wanted to go to the Grand Canyon. We wanted to take our boys with us. And so spring break a couple of years ago, off we go. And we're at the South Rim, the Phoenix, Arizona sort of side of the Grand Canyon. And there are few things in life, at least in my life, that my, my expectation of is exceeded by the experience of. I mean, have you ever... Found, found that there, there are a lot of things in life you just sort of you see it and you're disappointed, but not the enormity, not, not the, the the magnificent beauty that just sort of takes your breath away looking into the Grand Canyon and to have our boys there and to be able to experience that. 
as a family was, was frankly remarkable. Now, one thing I didn't know until we got there was that much of the Grand Canyon has these sort of security railings that you can sort of easily step over, climb over. And so as we were taking pictures, we noticed that there were sort of like hundreds of people that were going over the boundaries and they were getting these sort of death-defying pictures here in these places where there were literally hundreds of feet of drops, thousands of, of feet of drops. And that night we got back to the hotel and heard of two people that actually perished in an accident where they fell into the Grand Canyon. And you can read of this. Every year, there are people that get too close to the edge. You can hike that South Rim. And there are miles and there are miles of no protective guardrails. And so you can just go off here, off here, off here, and there you are. Hundreds of feet down, thousands of feet down. So surprise, surprise, we said to our boys, hey, listen, uh, we're really glad we're here, but there's some, there's some rules when we're hiking. We're, we're, we're not going to just explore anywhere we want to go to. There are going to be some people taking pictures, and we're not going to do that here. So actually, anytime we're walking, there's got to be a parent to your right as we walk. You've you got to be on our left. There are going to be certain places that we're not going to get to. Now, you can imagine our thoughts if, if somebody overheard sort of the guardrails we put up around our kids and said, hey, hey, mom, dad, hey, just chill out a little bit. Let them enjoy. Let them explore. Let them get right up to the edge. You know, my response to that person, that well-meaning person is, get behind me, Satan. That's my response. So we, we had guardrails because we could see that right at the precipice, if you took another step, it was death before you. God tells us that the consequences of sin, not to cramp our style, not to repress us from, from human exploration, but he tells us of the consequences of sin out of a holy love for us and a recognition of what sin does to each of us. It separates us from him, a perfectly holy God. And just as Adam and Eve took that step and they fell in the Garden of Eden, so you have and so have I. And, and there are consequences for your sin. There are consequences for my sin. And so we come to church and not wanting to minimize those consequences, we use passages like this because they remind us there is a line that all of us cross. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one of us that's righteous, not one. I'm not righteous before you here. I'm a sinner saved by grace before you here. I remind you of Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. I love that conjunction. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus the Lord. I speak of sin this morning out of love. I speak of sin this morning out of love. I speak of the judgment of God and the wrath of God because this is the truth as God reveals us. It was true for Moses. His sin led to a consequence and your sin and my sin at least to consequences. Not only physical death, but eternal death, eternal separation 
I'm a holy God. I don't know how many of you are Andy Griffith fans. Any Andy Taylor fans here? Barney Fife fans here? And you remember that episode where there's a visiting preacher that shows up at church in Mayberry? And he's from New York City, of all places. He's from New York City. And Andy's in the congregation. Andy's in the congregation. And Barney's in the congregation. And, and the gist of his sermon is, relax. You're all working too hard. You're all going too fast. Take it easy. Relax. Enjoy the simple pleasures of life. And B is sort of nodding. Andy's sort of nodding. And Barney's nodding, but it's not that kind of nodding. It's like a nodding off kind of nodding. Sort of the, the Sunday morning head nod. That can't happen. And so they're all leaving the sanctuary. And so you can imagine Aunt B and sort of her uh, southern charm uh, compliments the preacher. Great lesson, preacher. And Andy's leaving sort of in this southern, southern chivalrous way. Uh, wonderful lesson, pastor. And then Barney's just fishing for something to say as he slept through uh, the majority of the sermon. And he says, sin. Sin, that's a subject that you can't preach too much about sin. And Andy's like, come on, Barney. And B's like, come on, because they realized that he didn't hear a lick of that sermon. But his intuition, especially in that context, was to say, well, surely the pastor would have mentioned sin in a sermon. I'm a pastor. I think one of, one of the vocational derelictions of pastors in the 21st century is that you can leave our sermons and never say, that sermon convicted me. That sermon pointed out that sin is real and the consequences of sin are real and that the wrath of God comes down upon sin and that we have to have something. We in our culture, we're so tempted to magnify the love of God. Amen. Magnify the mercy of God. Amen. Magnify the grace of God. Amen. But here's the problem. When we magnify these things to the minimization of the judgment wrath of God, we have a Savior that we praise, but we don't know what we need to be saved from. We can praise him for his grace, but we don't exactly know why we need someone to die on the cross for us really, really good people. And and Moses and the severity of this story, it just stops us in our tracks because it reminds us of the seriousness of sin. Each of us in this room me first and foremost, stand in judgment of a holy God. And I stand before him as a sinner. And I have nothing to come to him and say, I am anything but that. I am and you are, we all are. Moses, he is saved not because he got his act together, but someone stepped in. Someone did what he didn't do or maybe couldn't do, and Zipporah, her obedience covers Moses and his disobedience. It is a picture of salvation. 
It is an Old Testament picture of salvation because we, just like Moses, we're sinners and our sin separates us from God. And there's a penalty for that and that's death. But our hope is not in Zippor. Our hope is in the obedience of someone else, the blood of another son, not Moses, but God's holy, eternal son, the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's what covers our sin. That's what makes us whole again. I love the way Paul picks up on this theme of circumcision because circumcision for us as Christians, it's not the key. That's an Old Testament sign for that Old Testament age. But for us as Christians, that sign has has been fulfilled in another sign. So in him, you see it on the screen, Colossians 2, you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You see what Paul's saying there? It's made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, he's talking about a spiritual circumcision. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what matters this morning isn't your circumcision. What matters this morning is your faith in Jesus Christ and your faith in his finished work. His his salvific death upon the cross and his conquering victory in the resurrection. And when we as Christians, we identify by faith, there is a sign that is a visible sign. It's not circumcision, but it's baptism. And just as the blood of Christ has to cover us from our sin, from our head to our toe, when a person is baptized, that water goes over their head and it covers their whole body because every aspect of our mind, our thought, our actions, it must be covered under the blood of Christ. And so baptism is that external sign to our family, to our friends, to all that watch of what God has done inside of us, which is a spiritual circumcision of our heart. We were alienated from him because of our sin. But now we're made right because he has purchased our salvation. So that penalty of death, it doesn't have to be, oh yes, all of us will die in this room. But that eternal death, that separation from him in a real place, and that real place is called hell. It doesn't have to be for anyone here today because all of us are sinners, but there's the great news that there has been one who has lived a perfect life and died a saving death. And if you turn to him and trust him, so you will be saved today through his work. You will be made right with him today through his work. You will be born again through his work. So that's why we sing these songs of the faith. That's why we can, without any hesitation, say, what can wash away my sin? I'm like Moses. I've got sin. You're like Moses. You've got sin. Something's got to get us through this. And what can wash it away? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What what can make you, what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What hope do we have this morning? We have a hope in the precious flow of Jesus that makes us white as snow. This is our hope this morning. There is no other fount that you know. There's no other fount that I know. There is only one fount, and that is the fount of the redeeming blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This morning, have you trusted in his death for you? 
Have you realized your sin and turned to him? And if the answer to that is yes, praise God. If the answer to that is no, wait no day longer. Let us pray. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. God, thank you for this glorious truth that is represented in the very elements of communion. The bread that we hold, the cup that we hold is a symbol, a reminder, of the very spiritual reality of what you have done through your Son. What we cannot do through our life, through our obedience, has been done through the perfect life of Jesus. Thank you for reminding us this morning not only the consequences and penalty of sin, but the precious gift of forgiveness through Jesus. Thank you that the blood of Christ covers us today, every one of us who turn to you. As Moses was redeemed through the shedding of blood, so we are redeemed through the shedding of blood. Thank you for forgiveness, because we know we need it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.